I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On today's episode, we have a special President's Day debate on the central question, is the presidency too powerful? We'll trace the historical evolution of presidential power and the Constitution from the founding to today and explore some of the current debates that are transfixing the nation involving presidential power. And joining us to do that are two of America's leading scholars of the presidency and the Constitution, friends of the Constitution Center and of the We the People podcast. And I'm so excited to learn from both of them. Eric Posner is Kirkland and Ellis Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Arthur and Esther Kane Research Chair at the University of Chicago Law School. He's the author of many books, and I want to recommend to you The Executive Unbound After the Madisonian Republic uh, to cast light on today's topic. He co-wrote it with Adrian Vermeule, and he's also written many other works on constitutional, international law, and financial regulation. Eric, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. And Julian Zelizer is Malcolm Stevenson Forbes, class of 1941, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. He, too, is the author of many books on American political history, including books on the Carter, Reagan, and Johnson presidency. And he's the author, most recently, of Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974, which he co-wrote with Kevin Cruz. Julian, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Eric, let's start with the founding? What was the founders' conception of the presidency under the Constitution? Why did they believe that Congress, rather than the president, would be the most dangerous branch? And how did they expect the president to behave? Well, it's, you know, it's not entirely clear what they thought. There were different people. They, they said different things. They thought different things. They changed their minds later on. But I think uh, a simple way of thinking about it was that there were two basic notions of the presidency. On the one hand, uh, you could think they, some of them thought of the president as kind of like almost a clerk, you know, uh, 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 he's, he was the executive, he, he would execute the laws. And of course that was very important and he would be commander in chief during war, but really policymaking uh, would be done by Congress. And then the executive would just follow through on whatever policies Congress chose and enacted in law. At the other extreme, though, um, they, many of them thought of the president as, well, the president was officially, or the executive branch was officially a co-equal branch with Congress, and the president would have um, policy-making authority. Uh, his ability to veto laws, for example, could potentially give him policy-making authority. I think people understood he would have a lot of influence over foreign relations, which would give him policy-making authority. Now, you mentioned that uh, Congress, that the, uh, the founders were, were worried about Congress, and they were worried about Congress because of their experience with the state legislatures in many of the states, um, which had, in their view, acted irresponsibly. And so part of the idea was to have the president or the executive branch put a constraint on uh, Congress. Um, and of course, um, there were other constraints put on Congress as well. But you know, the bottom line was there, there was a lot of ambiguity about um, what the president presidency would look like, and, and I, I think a lot of them just assumed that George Washington would be the first president, and they could trust him to 
to kind of set the contours for the future of presidential power. Thanks so much for that helpful distinction between those framers who believed in the president as a kind of clerk or a chief magistrate, as President Taft put it, and those who thought that the president had more policymaking power. Julian, how was this debate represented in the Constitution? The take care clause uh, in Article 2 both grants and constrains presidential power, forbidding the president from breaching federal law, but empowering him to refuse to enforce laws that he thinks are unconstitutional. But uh, describe your conception of the debate during the framing era about the presidency and how it was reflected in the Constitution. Well, I think the debate itself is the uh, the evidence of the debate is the Constitution and this kind of separated, divided, fragmented power that's cooked into our system. So you do have a president. You do have one source of centralized power, which was there at the founding despite the origins of our country. And I think that's very relevant. I think the response to state legislatures is a really important part of the story. Um, But you can see there were many checks built in from the start. So uh, in terms of the power of the purse, it was very important that it was not vested in the executive branch. It was placed uh, really in the hands of the House of Representatives, which was the most uh, popular, directly elected institution that we had. The power to declare war was given to the president and I'm to Congress. And and the same uh, way in which the president did have the ability to circumvent or check legislation, uh, Congress still had the primary role as the policymaking institution, and it had the power of impeachment, which was a last resort, but powerful resort for the removal of the president. And so uh, I think the ambiguity and um, kind of tensions over executive power are very much reflected in in how the Constitution is constructed and some of the rules we had from day one that continue today that don't give the president that power that they often crave uh, in moments of crisis or in moments of ordinary legislating. Well, the question we want to dig into on the podcast is, has the presidency usurped uh, Congress's constitutional power over the purse and the power to declare war over the course of the 20th century. And just fast forwarding to 1912, we the people listeners know about the significance of that election in pitting uh, perhaps our last constitutionalist, President Taft, who said the president could only do what the Constitution explicitly allowed against two uh, imperial presidents, uh, Roosevelt and Wilson, uh, who claimed that the president could do anything that the Constitution didn't forbid. That's speaking broadly, but Eric, is 1912 an important turning point? And would you describe uh, Theodore Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson as the uh, president who most changed presidential power in the 20th century? And in in what ways did they change it? Right. I mean, the word usurp uh, has a certain (laughs) quality to it, which I may not agree with. but, But basically, the story is that the presidency was weak throughout most of the 19th century, and then it became very powerful in the 20th century. I'd probably date at 1901, which is when Theodore Roosevelt first entered uh, office after McKinley's assassination. But 1912 is fine if you want. Um, It was not a sudden process. It was a gradual process. There were certainly some very powerful 19th century presidents, including, uh, well, George Washington and Andrew Jackson. Polk was, Lincoln 
but those they were they were exceptional. Um, and what happens in the 20th century is that the powerful president uh, becomes institutionalized. Um, and uh, you know this is a, a long and complicated story, but I'll just say very briefly what what I think happened, and I think this is more or less the conventional wisdom. The United States, um, toward the end of the 19th and into the 20th century, became a global power, and it developed a national economy. So this earlier, um, you know, constitutional understanding, which put which gave a lot of power to the states, and uh, and more power to Congress than to the president, had to give way. Uh, so that a form of government could arise that would be adequate to these new tasks of regulating a national economy and of conducting foreign relations. And so a lot of power moved up from the states to the national government. And then the issue that we're concerned with is um, how that power was then allocated between Congress and the presidency. And I want to return to this word usurp again. I, you know, I think it's not the right word to use because what really happened was that the presidents were given power. You know, they sometimes grabbed it, they sometimes were given it. Congress, by statute, gave an enormous amount of power to presidents over the course of the 20th century. Well, really starting the 19th century, but the major changes were in the 20th century. And in other ways, when presidents asserted a power based on often a tendentious interpretation of the Constitution, Congress and the courts would acquiesce. So it was not um, usurpation. It was um, a gradual process in which, as a general, in a general sense, the political class, and I think the public more generally, accepted a shift of power from Congress to the president. Julian, do you agree that the story of presidential power is more of congressional surrender than pre presidential usurpation? Tell us about the significance of of the Theodore Roosevelt presidency in 1901 or, or his run for office in 1912 under the banner of the president being a steward of the people? And what in particular happened during the Roosevelt and Wilson presidencies that allowed both presidents to assert executive power in ways that Congress accepted? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, as a historian, I always end up saying it's a little of everything. Uh, and and that's how we tend to to see these issues. So I think there is an element of usurped throughout the 20th century. Uh, there's part of Teddy Roosevelt, for example, who as president really reimagined what the institution was and made it something that was much more visible to the public, an institution that was more visible than it had been for most of the 19th century in part through his use of the press uh, and media relations as a way to get his agenda out there, as a way to fight against his opponents uh, in, in Congress. And, and he took a more assertive role, for example, on foreign policy. Um, and, and you see the same with Woodrow Wilson. So that early 20th century, there's part of these presidents simply making the institution more muscular and actually expanding uh, the executive branch and its apparatus. There's part of it that's given. I, I think Eric's correct on this. Uh, it's given in part by Americans who in the early 20th century are living in a more complex world with industrialization and urbanization and more tensions overseas. And there's a desire, which will continue, for more 
some kind of centralized source of authority. Congress never works very well. And so as our problems became more complex, I think I think that was appealing. And certainly when Woodrow Wilson uh, brings us into World War One, that's a, a real turning point uh, in that our role overseas will never revert to what it was uh, in the 19th century. And that will bring a series of policy problems uh, that gives support to having more presidential power on national security. My final answer is Congress doesn't actually give everything away. Congress remains very influential throughout the 20th century, right through this day. And really, it's a matter of when they want to use their authority. Often, Congress doesn't. They're happy to let the president handle problems. Um, but there's other moments we've seen where uh, congressional power flares up. And I'll just kind of give one example people don't talk about. Uh, it's the end of the 1930s. Franklin Roosevelt is president. He's been reelected in 36. And, and he's one of our most powerful presidents, not just then, but even to this day. Um, but after the 1938 midterms, a coalition forms in Congress of Southern Democrats and Republicans who oppose a lot of where FDR wants to go on issues like race relations uh, and, and other kinds of policy questions. And they, they become a very powerful check against the president. FDR really has trouble getting a lot of his remaining domestic uh, ambitions onto the table. And presidents through Lyndon Johnson will continue to face a very powerful bloc in Congress that doesn't believe in imperial presidents. And, and makes that clear. And, and you've seen that in other kinds of uh, uh, flexing of congressional power. So I think all three are important to remember as we sort through what happened to the presidency in this era. Uh, thank you for putting on the table the importance of congressional pushback to executive action. Um, and thanks for putting FDR on the table. Eric, let's think about the FDR presidency as measured by the number of executive orders that he issued. So Franklin Roosevelt issued more executive orders than any other president in U.S. history, 3,728. That's up from, uh, you know, Washington had eight, and in the 19th century it was sort of in the 10 to 20 range. Lincoln at 48 was the biggest 19th century number. Then the number soared under Theodore Roosevelt, who issued more than 1,000 executive orders, and Wilson, who issued 1,800. And then it goes back down, and then Roosevelt is, is 3,700. So the, the question is, how did Roosevelt transform the presidency through his use of executive orders, ranging from temporarily removing U.S. currency from the gold standard, which the Supreme Court approved, to the Japanese internment? And how is that significant in redefining the relation between the president and Congress? You have to be careful about executive orders. You know, there are executive orders that uh, are incredibly trivial about, I don't know, the manicuring of the White House lawn, and there are executive orders that are uh, quite transformative. But I suppose as a very rough approximation, approximation that gives you a sense of how presidents were using their power. Um, you should also understand that, that a lot of executives, probably most of them, are executive orders, are orders that um, implement authority that Congress has given the president to administer uh, the national government. But what was going on at a very rough level, I mean, there are two things. One is Roosevelt was in office during an economic emergency and a military emergency. And in both cases, the president had to act. Congress uh, was too slow moving, lacked expertise, 
Um, and Congress gave the president authorities. In some cases, in other cases, he acted based on um, his constitutional authority, but he had to act in order to address these two um, extraordinary uh, problems. We're talking about Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt here. Um, uh, so uh, as the president is given more authority by Congress, or if you want, seizes authority, uh, he has to uh, he has to govern, and executive orders is one of the ways that the president governs. It's not the only way. Presidents often just issue memoranda or, you know, say on the telephone or by tweet, I suppose, uh, what they want their subordinates to do. Uh, but, but again, you know, the, the, the pattern of executive orders is just an illustration of the rise of, of uh, presidential power over the 20th century. Uh, Julian, what are your thoughts about the significance of the numbers of executive orders and giving us a sense of shifting presidential power to take the numbers uh, further into the 20th century after the high under Roosevelt of 3,700? Truman was 907, and then things settled. Nixon, 346, Carter, 320, Reagan, 381, and things have been, uh, you know, Clinton, 364, Bush, 291, Obama, 276, and President Trump only 96. So the numbers have been in the, uh, you know, two to to 300 range recently. Um, Eric distinguished between trivial and significant executive orders. But have we seen since Franklin Roosevelt an increase in rule by executive order and by efforts by presidents to achieve through executive order what they're unable to achieve from Congress? And does that represent a change in presidential power or not? Yeah, I I think it's significant. Not all executive orders are equal, and it is important to remember some of the growth uh, is a function of the president doing more stuff. Uh, And and some of that stuff, uh, it's quicker to do that way, and it's not necessarily really to even avoid Congress. Um, But we have seen the president using this tactic on, on some pretty important measures. You see in the Reagan administration, for example, uh, executive orders become very important in the deregulatory efforts of the administration. Uh, and and using uh, executive orders and other comparable measures to, to try to weaken regulations that exist or to even try to weaken some of the key agencies is an important strategy for conservatives in the 1980s when they're having trouble uh, getting uh, support in Congress. And uh, the next time you really see this flare is under George W. Bush during the war on terror, uh, where executive orders become significant. It's not all irrelevant decisions, really uh, important decisions in terms of counterintelligence, tactics that can be used, uh, where executive action is a chief mechanism for the administration to move in areas where congressional support doesn't exist. Uh, We saw it under the Obama administration, uh, certainly with problems like immigration uh, and climate change, where frustration with the the Tea Party slash Freedom Caucus uh, led the president in that direction. So so I do think it's become an important element of of 20th and 21st century presidential power. Uh, And and part of it is who's using it uh, in terms of what you think of it, you know. Liberals don't like executive power very much when a conservative or Republican's in office and and vice versa uh, in terms of conservatives with Democrats. But there's a bigger institutional issue that has arisen. And and it's is this a legitimate form of policymaking when you are dealing 
with big consequential decisions. Uh, the president's still limited. They can only deal with existing uh, programs and existing policies. Uh, but but we saw with Reagan and Bush, it, it really can move the needle in, in important ways. And, and I think it's understandable why people are not always comfortable with that, given where we started our history. Eric, you had a piece in the New York Times uh, in 2016, executive authority is a powerful tool that should be used with caution. You said President Obama has followed in the footsteps of his predecessors in unilateral presidential actions in foreign relations from the decision to launch wars to treaty making. But that's been the norm for much of the 20th century. And you say the danger is that this can short circuit deliberation and lead to tyranny and indulges ideological fan fantasies and therefore it should be used cautiously. So uh, <clears throat> would you broadly say that the post the 20th century post-war presidents, uh, George W. Bush, Obama and Trump have been similar in their use of unilateral executive authority, Bush to, to spend the uh, to create military tribunals and deny habeas corpus to detainees and Obama for the dreamers and so forth? Or uh, are the presidents using the executive power differently? And if, if you're concerned about this unilateral executive action, what should be done about it? Right. I, I'm, not, I'm actually not terribly concerned about it. And I think this is where Julian and I uh, disagree. And I do want to return to something he said. I, I think Julian puts the point exactly correctly, which is this is an institutional matter, and we, we need to abstract from whether we're Republicans who are unhappy with a Democratic president or Republicans who are happy with a Republican president or Democrats, you know, happy or unhappy with whoever's president. You have to think in terms of the overall uh, institutional development and whether the trajectory has been a good one or a bad one. Uh, just to answer your question, it's, it's very hard to distinguish presidents, I think, since uh, since Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, they haven't all faced emergencies, so they haven't all had to use executive power to, to the extent that Roosevelt did, but they, they all have used executive power. And, you know, part of the paradox here is, is they really have to. I mean, Congress tells them to. Congress passes these laws, like the Clean Air Act, which says, you know, we're concerned about pollution and then get, they give a lot of authority to the president to do something about it. So it's true, for example, that Reagan used his executive authority to deregulate, but that was after Carter and Nixon and Johnson and others, well, Johnson, um, with respect to other laws, had used their executive power to create the regulations in the first place. So, so again, we have to kind of abstract away from our, our political views and ask, What's wrong with having the president uh, regulate? So, you know, you're, the, the usual view, um, and I acknowledge these concerns in that op-ed, and, and I have elsewhere, is that the, the president has too much power. He'll uh, implement crazy policies. He'll benefit his supporters at the um, expense of, of other people. I mean, yes, uh, there are all these risks, risks of abuse. But as Julian pointed out earlier, there do remain quite uh, significant constraints on the president, including Congress itself and also the courts. So the question is, well, what's the benefit? Why did this long-term trend occur? And the real problem with Congress is, is one of gridlock. Congress, Congress knows this. Uh, it, can't, it can't regulate rapidly in response to uh, either emergencies or even you know, slow-moving 
changes in technology or the economy that require um, that require uh, action. Congress has not been able to address uh, climate change, for example. The president, President Obama, did implement regulations uh, to address climate change, which he was able to because of the Clean Air Act, uh, a statute enacted by Congress decades ago. It's true that Trump is cutting back on those regulations, but at least something's being done and progress has been made. Um, another example would be uh, the financial crisis. Congress simply was unable to deal with uh, the financial crisis. We saw this in the near catastrophic um, failure to enact uh, the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act in the fall of 2008. The executive branch was the main um, actor in addressing the financial crisis because it had been given the authority to do so, and it was able to move uh, quickly uh, to do so. And then the last sort of general example I'll give, although we can talk about more examples, is, is conduct of foreign relations. Congress, the Senate in particular, have been extremely hostile to um, uh, a strong foreign role for the United States going back, really, you know, the entire 20th century, uh, but even after World War II. And most of the institutions that um, we uh, think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight have been good, international trade institutions, military alliances like NATO. Most of these things were either implemented by the president alone or uh, they were uh, created at the behest of the president with Congress uh, going along uh, reluctantly. Um, so, so this is really the issue. The, the issue is in a modern economy and in a, in a dangerous world, um, how much authority should be allocated to Congress versus the presidency? My, my view is that the lesson of the 20th century is that while we, can, we do get bad presidents, right, like right now, from time to time, um, generally speaking, uh, a powerful presidency is necessary. I don't mean, though, an unlimited presidency. I do think that Congress uh, should play a role in constraining the president and does. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, that, that is really uh, the, the issue. That thoughtful answer is consistent with the distinction you make in the executive unbound between two systems of government, the liberal legalism model where Congress takes the lead in making policy and the presidential primacy model in which the executive takes the lead and you think that the liberal legalism model is the official story but the presidential primacy model more accurately to reflect how things work. Julian, you wrote a very uh, illuminating piece in the New York Times um, uh, with Kevin Cruz in 2019, have we had enough of the imperial presidency? And you note that uh, Congress attempted after Watergate to restrain presidential power in the War Powers Act of 1973 and the National Emergency Act of 1976, which is the subject of the current wall dispute, um, as well as other reforms. Um, but the, what went wrong, the, the, these attempts to restrain the presidency don't seem to have worked. And then you call on uh, Congress now to put new limits on the presidency. Tell us what those post-Watergate reforms were, why broadly they went wrong, and how you think that Congress could reassert itself. Yeah, so so the ni 1970s, you have a real pushback against presidential power, and uh, there were many proponents of a strong presidency 
like Arthur Schlesinger, who had been uh, a, a court historian, so to speak. He, he, had, he had worked in the Kennedy administration. He had written about FDR. And he had, he had spent much of his career really writing about the virtues of presidential power, it being a more efficient and robust institution. And he famously writes a book in 1973 that I think captured the mood of many Americans in the middle of Richard Nixon's scandal in uh, the end of the Vietnam War, and he wrote a book called The Imperial Presidency. And he he says, he starts the book saying uh, that he himself was wrong, that uh, he had he was guilty of only imagining the best of what the presidency offered and not really seeing the dangers. And when Nixon resigns in 74, the mood of the country is very different. And the mood in Congress is is one where there's an effort to reclaim some of the power that had been lost. Already in 1973, Congress passed the War Powers Act, which tried to reassert more of a role for Congress when deploying troops overseas. In 1974, Congress passes budget reform legislation that tries to centralize the budget process and uh, create a more equal setting for Congress when dealing uh, with, with mapping out how money will be spent. Uh, in 1978, Congress passes an ethics reform legislation that includes uh, creating an independent uh, counsel, uh, a prosecutor who would be uh, appointed to investigate executive branch corruption and would be pretty free of any kind of oversight uh, or restraint when those investigations were triggered. So there were many reforms and there were others that were put into place trying to push back a little on this trend that we've been talking about uh, in in the podcast. And uh, some of them, you know, had an effect. The, the independent prosecutor, very controversial, would be used very often uh, right through the end of uh, Bill Clinton's presidency. Uh, the budget reform remains the architecture of how uh, we handle budget matters. But it's clear that presidents are very strong. I think President Trump is exposing just how much uh, muscle they have, even if someone's unpopular, even if someone uh, is 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 uh, controversial. And and part of the problem is partisanship. Meaning, what we're seeing, at least right now, is how partisan incentives in Congress will allow for a president to act uh, in in very aggressive fashion and unconventional fashion. Uh, and as we're uh, seeing uh, with the national emergency in ways that many people feel are unconstitutional or contradict uh, the the intentions of of the founders. And so we wrote that piece um, that that some of what was happening in the 70s, much of it, which has fallen away since that time, it might be time to re have some of that conversation. It doesn't mean creating a president that doesn't have power, but but putting into place more restraints than the Constitution provides as is uh, to, to avoid um, an excessive use of the authority given to the person in the Oval Office. Thanks for that. Eric, let us hone in on the National Emergency Act of 1976. Um, presidents have declared national emergencies nearly five dozen times since the act was passed in 1976. Uh, never before has one been used after Congress rejected funding for a particular policy and President Trump's declaration of national emergency is the first since 9-11 to authorize military action. Most of the others have had to do with tariff policy and 
foreign policy. And and the question I want to ask is not the wonky question of whether President Trump's declaration of a national emergency to build the wall technically violates the Act of 76, because the arguments on that question are complicated, as our previous podcast revealed. But if we step back, that act allowed Congress to disapprove the president's actions by concurrent resolution. The Supreme Court subsequently uh, struck that down by saying that legislative vetoes are unconstitutional. You have to pass laws with bicameralism and presentment signed by the president. So that means that to disapprove of the president's action now, you need a veto-proof majority in Congress. Does this broadly, not technically, represent a kind of delegation of Congress's appropriation power to the president in ways that threaten constitutional values, if not technically violate the Constitution or not? You know, it's, it's a tough question. And, you know, there, there, there's a lot going on there, like the Supreme Court's uh, decision on the legislative visa, veto, which, which makes it a, a complicated question to answer. Um, you know, I think it's a little too early to tell. Uh, it's po- quite possible that the courts are going to block this. If the courts block it, then we would just say that the president tried something and it was it was blocked. And all presidents do that. All presidents do things that they think are lawful or claim are lawful, and then they're stopped by the courts. And uh, so far, at least, uh, presidents acquiesce when courts um, uh, block block their actions. Um, so, you know, I think it's a little early to tell. I, I think we should not overreact to what's, what Trump is doing. I think, actually, I, I disagree with uh, with um, Julian here about Trump. I think Trump is a weak president. Um, I do think the presidency is powerful, but I don't think Trump is exploit, has exploited the powers of the presidency very effectively. What he was able to accomplish uh, in the last two years was the result of having Republican majority in both houses of Congress. And Trump, you know, largely uh, followed a kind of a conventional Republican set of policies. Um, the, uh, the, it's, it's in this area of immigration where he really differs from, um, from his own party, as well as, you know, most, most, most of public opinion. And, and he's been thrashing around. He's, he's been not very effective. He's been far less effective than Obama was in the area of immigration. Uh, Obama did some meaningful things to um, to help uh, some classes of, of undocumented uh, aliens. Some of what Obama did was sought by the courts as well, but not, not all of it. Um, I, I don't think we can draw lessons from Trump's national emergency declaration about the power of the presidency Yet, all I, all I can say, I think, in answer to your question, is that the reason that Congress has given the president so much emergency authority over, over many decades is that um, it realized that it, Congress, could not itself respond to emergencies. And the real problem here is, almost by definition, uh, it's hard to define, it, it's hard to say what an emergency is. Uh, they're always different. It's hard to know what authorities are appropriate if the emergency takes place. And so uh, Congress has been almost forced uh, to uh, give very broad um, authority uh, to the presidency so that the president could address uh, emergencies. Um, emergencies that in the 19th century would just not have been addressed, at least not at the national uh, national level. 
Um, that's, I think, the, the system we've had. I, I think it's the system we have to have. Now, there are ways that Congress can assert itself and try to prevent uh, the president from abusing this authority. This um, this kind of procedural check that it, that it had that you mentioned was one way, although that's been uh, struck down by the court. Um, it can still conduct oversight, you know, in the extreme, it can still impeach uh, the president. It can, in many ways, withdraw cooperation from presidents who abuse their power by refusing, you know, to give the president something that, that it wants. So Congress does retain some authority, but I do think that uh, these broad emergency powers are going to continue to be a part of, of our system. Thanks for that. Julian, a version of the same question to you to tease out agreement or disagreement. Do you believe that uh, Congress's delegation to the president of this emergency power combined with the Supreme Court's invalidation of the legislative veto uh, represents in spirit, if not uh, technically, uh, an unconstitutional delegation of congressional authority to the president in ways that threatens the separation of powers? Or do you agree with Eric that it has to be this way, that Congress doesn't have the flexibility to respond to emergencies, and because of the polarization, you note it's unlikely to do so anyway, and therefore this is just a new balance that we're going to have to live with. Look, I I come I'm more of a Congress person, and uh, so so first I I just for me when I look back at the history of presidents, even with emergency powers, the record is often not so great. Um, whether you're talking about emergencies or you're talking about broader national security strategy, there's just presidents who have made massive mistakes. Speed often has a cost or excessive power has a cost. So you, you think of Lyndon Johnson and the escalation in 64 and 65 of Vietnam, which was just, it was really uh, done for the wrong reasons. It was done with the wrong logic. And the consequences were enormous. The weapons of mass destruction fiasco, and I think you can call it that, uh, that was at, at root with with the war in Iraq and uh, the way in which that information was manipulated. And again, the, the cost of a very long war. Uh, on those two examples, I, I always, those are what are what's on my mind. And, you know, part of why Congress keeps reasserting itself is isn't simply an institutional back and forth. It's the realization at key moments of what goes wrong uh, with presidents, um, that there's a virtue of the kind of deliberate or bargaining uh, dynamic that's required in in Congress. And, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that debate uh, play out today. I think in the last two years, we're in a situation where the Republican Congress until now has uh, handed the president, or I, I think Eric's right, uh, that he has, uh, the Congress has given the president lots of leeway to do what the president wants to do. Uh, and, and for me, uh, I guess I see it in not dire terms, but I, I do think the president not very competent uh, and probably not getting the most out of the kinds of actions he is doing is still moving in some pretty aggressive ways. If you take his bully pulpit power, um, I don't think it's insignificant the kind of language he's just unleashed on uh, individuals and institutions um, without any kind of recourse. I do think, uh, you know, without getting support for 
almost anything on Capitol Hill, even when Republicans were in control. Uh, he used uh, his executive authority uh, pretty effectively uh, on deregulatory matters, including with climate change. And I do think there's something different in terms of this invocation of national security. Uh, A, in that the crisis, uh, it's not, there is no crisis. And there's just not support for the idea there's any kind of border crisis. So uh, whereas other examples such as Bush after 9-11 or even Carter after the Iran hostage crisis, there's something real they're reacting to. And you could dispute if emergency power was the best way to go. This is a, a political campaign message that's all of a sudden turned into the basis of this use of power. Uh, and added to that, it's using the power to spend money after Congress, Republican Congress, didn't support it. Now uh, a divided Congress doesn't support the use of money that he wants. And he, he's using the power to spend money that way. For me, that's a different kind of uh, national emergency action by the president than we've seen. And I think it could really set up a dangerous precedent. And I think that's partly why some Republicans are just as uh, unsettled by this as Democrats are. Uh, thanks for that. Eric, a response to those two points. First, that the historic uses of emergency power in wartime, in particular in Vietnam and Iraq, haven't turned out so well because of the Madisonian virtues of slow decision and the dangers of speed. And, and the second, that regardless of the technicalities here, the president really is invoking this power domestically to spend funds that Congress has refused to give him. And that's dangerous, too. Right. Now, I don't want to be in the position of defending Trump. OK, just to be just to be clear about that. I, I don't I don't like him. I don't support him in any way. I don't support uh, this emergency declaration. But um, but let me let me try to respond more broadly. So, so first on the international side, we have to look at both sides of the ledger and and we have to we have to, you know, we don't want to just cherry pick uh, particular um uh, foreign relations disasters, of which Vietnam was one and Iraq was another. Although I want to say parenthetically that uh, Congress did authorize the war in Iraq. Now, possibly, possibly uh, the administration was not honest with Congress, but uh, it's not entirely clear what the world would look like that was that would be different. This was not a case of the president going to war without uh, congressional authority. Vietnam, there's also also somewhat ambiguous, but there was basic congressional support um, for the uh, for the war. But, the, but you know, the, the, what really concerns me is not that, it's World War II, and it's the Cold War, right? It's, it's the, the, the basic isolationist sentiment of Congress. So Congress, Congress, we have to remember that half of Congress is the Senate, and a, a, a good portion of the power in the Senate is uh, possessed by rural states, and uh, these are states that are often isolationist, but in any event don't reflect, you know, a, as a general matter, Congress, because of the way the Senate is structured, does not reflect general American uh, public opinion. It's a biased institution in that respect. Um, the president does a much better job, the presidency, of, of reflecting overall American public opinion, even though it is true that Trump and other presidents have won elections without the popular vote. Okay, so the, the, my view is that in international relations, the presidency has, as a general matter, acted uh, more responsibly than Congress has. 
going back to World War II, where isolationist sentiment delayed American entry into the war and hampered uh, Franklin Roosevelt's efforts to help uh, the United Kingdom and so on and so forth. Okay, so, th so that seems to me the debate. Um, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and I also think that in the general conduct of the Cold War, as a general matter, uh, the, the presidents did a reasonably good job and were frequently hampered uh, by Congress. Uh, a reasonably good job in the, in the sense of building international institutions that were helpful and beneficial in building uh, military alliances. Uh, there, are, there are a whole range of, uh, of, inter of treaties and, and so forth that the Senate refused to um, give its consent to, that you know, presidents had to work around largely sensible types of treaties. So, so that on the, on the formulation side. On the domestic side, um, uh, well, um, <laughs> you know, I, as I said, I'm, I'm not going to defend Trump, but we have, to, we have to sort of think about what the alternative is. Uh, and, and I guess I'm just not clear, you know, what, what's on the table here. For example, you could take the position that the president, that the Congress should simply withdraw all the emergency authorities that it has given to the presidency. And that's a possible position to take. I, I don't think it's right. I don't know whether Julian takes that position. Um, I, I think uh, another position would be, well, it's okay for Congress to pass statutes to give the president emergency powers, but um, there should be more constraints. There should be more procedural constraints. There should be more rules. There should be limits on how the president should use the authority that he's given to, that he's given. Um, but that is actually the system we have. You know, we, we could go, you know, one by one through all of these statutes and have a debate about whether they're too broad or too narrow. And I suspect, you know, that Julian and I would agree in some cases and disagree in other cases. But, but I, I, I think we have to, for at least for the time being, resist the notion that there's just, uh, there's just too much emergency authority. Um, you know, a lot of these statutes do things like, say, just going back to 2008, you know, if there's a liquidity crisis, um, the, FDI, the FDIC, you know, can extend deposit insurance beyond the, the $250,000 limit. I mean, that's an emergency authority that's in the executive branch. I think it's very sensible. Um, so, uh, because I don't think that if there's a liquidity crisis, we can expect Congress to do that on its own uh, quickly enough to, to address the problem. Okay, then the final point is, you know, once you have these statutes in place, there's always the danger that the president will just violate them. So let's suppose there's, suppose Trump announces there's a liquidity crisis or bullies the FDIC into claiming there's a liquidity crisis when in fact there isn't. And as a result of which, I don't know, he can raise deposit limits or get the FDIC to raise deposit limits, which, you know, pleases his cronies in some way. Well, you know, that's just illegal. And, uh, and we have to trust the courts or Congress or the public to push back if the president uh, violates these rules. But, you know, he can violate whatever rules he wants. Uh, we don't have to, you know, uh, when, when Truman uh, ordered uh, the military to see steel mills during the Korean War, you know, he was just breaking the rules and, and, and the courts blocked him, the Supreme Court blocked him. 
Um, and and I would expect that, that that will happen in this case. If it doesn't happen, then then I'm, I'd be happy to have this debate about whether um, one or many of these emergency statutes should be uh, should be uh, should be eliminated. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this important uh, debate. Uh, and the first one, Julian, is to you. Um, has the presidency become too powerful under the Constitution? And if so, what in particular can Congress do about it, especially in light of the polarization in Congress? Yeah, I I do come down on the side that, that Congress has, uh, that the presidency has, has become too powerful and that there is a need for a renewed look as we had in the 1970s on how to impose some restraints or some stronger checks on the presidency. Part of this can involve looking at uh, the laws that, that give the president a certain amount of power. Uh, so uh, with, with the National Emergencies Act, for example, it's possible to think about, uh, is it good that the president uh, now has the ability to veto a resolution that comes from the House and Senate uh, revoking um, that uh, re revoking uh, that emergency power, which was meant originally to be a check from Congress when they thought it was being misused. Uh, I do think uh, there's ways in which we could think about uh, legislation that would protect investigations uh, from the Justice Department as as we're seeing today. Uh, so, so part of the conversation does have to include how do we uh, put some breaks on what presidents have been able to do, the power they've asserted in the last few decades. I also think part of the solution will come from fixing Congress. And so I think those conversations can't be separate. So when we talk about another world, the congressional reform world, that talks about what do we have to do to try to create um, better uh, gerrymandering or better districting systems? Uh, or how do we reform campaign finance to push back against some of the sources of polarization? Those are integral because if Congress is acting in a better fashion, if there are more paths uh, to negotiation and legislative compromise, that's the best pushback for the arguments against increasing presidential power because some of the reasons it's legitimated would fall away. And, you know, the great moments in domestic history, in terms of domestic policy, come from when Congress is actually taking action. Uh, whether you're talking about the, the New Deal or the Great Society as examples, those are really momentous moments because in Congress you see the institution working and through negotiation and compromise and fighting, coming up with real solutions to problems that have lasted uh, for decades. And so I think those are, are two uh, kind of ways in which we need to think about some of what I believe President Trump has exposed uh, simply in terms of the, the government we've built. It's not all because of him at all. Uh, I think he just exploits uh, some of the opportunities that we've given uh, presidents and it's time to do a little pushback. Thanks so much for that. Eric, last word is to you. Um, has the presidency become too powerful under the Constitution? And if not, should Americans live with the current state of affairs? Or are any constitutional or legislative reforms advisable? 
Uh, I do agree with uh, Julian about uh, a number of reforms that would make a lot of sense. I would, I would love to bring back the independent council, uh, who was an official who had kind of independence, independent authority to investigate uh, the president and other people in, in the executive branch. I do uh, think that there are procedural reforms uh, that Congress could make um, that would uh, provide stronger oversight over the presidency. Um, I do very much agree with him that uh, one of the problems is that uh, Congress is in many ways broken. Um, and, uh, you know, if you can fix Congress, uh, <laughs> you wouldn't need as powerful a president. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly skeptical, though, about fixing Congress, which is one of the reasons why I do think we need a powerful uh, presidency. But I think at a level, uh, we, we fundamentally disagree. And, and I guess the way I'll put this is to go back to the New Deal, which uh, Julian celebrated as a time where Congress, um, you know, really uh, played a, a significant role in addressing an economic emergency. And you see, the thing is, is that the significant role that Congress played was one of setting up administrative government under the authority of the president. That was the great thing that it did uh, during the New Deal. Uh, we had we had, we did of course have administrative government before, but this this was really uh, the inflection point in our history, where we started moving away from what one would call you know broadly a parliamentary or a congressional system, one where you have a, a large body of people deliberating and creating policy, to one in which you have bureaucrats who do that under the loose uh, authority of, of of the president. And I do think that this type of bureaucratic, centralized, administrative government is, is, is necessary. I think it's necessary both for regulation, if we care about the environment and uh, financial stability and um, uh, you know, other elements of, of, of domestic life. And it's, and it's important if we care about uh, security. The, the challenge, of course, is that an administrative government is it may be less responsive to public opinion than uh, parliamentary or congressional government. I'm not actually sure that that's true. It's really hard to know. Um, uh, you obviously need significant democratic checks on it, um, and we do. Uh, it may be that we need stronger democratic checks than we have, but I don't think the solution is to return to a system where Congress plays the primary role in setting policy. I think uh, the world that we live in uh, is one in which the kind of deliberative body represented by Congress plays a general oversight role, um, can step in when the president uh, abuses his power, but will always be to some extent uh, subordinate to uh, the administrative system. Thank you so much, Eric Posner and Julian Zelizer, for an illuminating, deep, and important discussion about the proper balance of the constitutional powers of the presidency and Congress. You have taught us that there are legitimate debates about what that balance should be, that the balance has been changing over a long period of time, and that our listeners have a duty to educate themselves about both the history and the details of the constitutional arguments in the cases that are on the horizon in order to decide for themselves what they think the Constitution requires. Eric, Julian, thank you so much for joining. 
Yes, thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show. Also check out Live at America's Town Hall, our companion podcast, which is the live feed from our public programs and debates here at the Constitution Center. There was a great conversation recently with Michael Tomaski about his new book, A Republican If You Can Keep It. And if you haven't checked out that podcast, I hope you will enjoy it as much as we enjoy and learn from it all the time. And always remember, dear friends, dear We the People listeners, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little governmental funds. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of lifelong learners across the country who are taking the time to educate yourself about the Constitution just as the founders intended. So please go to the website and visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate to become a member and signal your membership in this community of lifelong learners. James Madison would expect no less. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.